pray you had a blessed Christmas. It was uh, really sweet to be here Christmas Eve and uh, just be part of God's work here. And you know that um, we got a, a new year coming up, and maybe it's it's time. And, and the Lord has spoken to my heart too that I, I really need to press into Him more than ever before because the days are dark; they're getting darker, more challenging spiritually. <clears throat> but I'm just so thankful that, that we have a wonderful God that loves us and he keeps us, he speaks to us, he corrects us, he encourages us, he prays for us, and we sure know that he, he prays and we need his prayers, don't we? Father, we thank you that, that your son Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. We thank you that you've sent us your son. You've given us a savior a Messiah, and may we make that choice day by day to, to walk with you in accordance with your word, with your will, <clears throat> that we would give the enemy no room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. If you would open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 9, we're going to be going through three verses that we kind of touched on quickly the, the last time we were in 1 Kings, and it was a few weeks ago. This morning, or this morning, <laughs> this evening, this evening we are studying verses 7 through 9, and it's entitled God's Warning to Solomon. And, you know, we've seen as we've, we've looked at chapters 8 and 9 and the, the great buildup to the... Uh, the the temple of God being built. We've seen the dedication of the temple. We studied Solomon's prayer and the celebration that, that took 14 days after the temple was completed. And we see that you know, the celebration of the temple, it's a celebration of one of the greatest days of Israel up until this point in time. As we began chapter 9, we looked at God's covenant with Solomon, and God reminded Solomon of the, of the importance of obedience to him and the consequences of disobedience, and he gave them the two worst consequences that the children of Israel could ever hear. And we find these in verse 7. Let's back up to verse 6 first. But if you shall at, at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people." The first thing God said is, listen, if, if you disobey me and you turn from my ways and your children turn from my ways, he says, I will cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them. God said, I will drive them out of the land and it will be inhabited by others. And second, he said, this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. Very, two very, very 
hard consequences of disobedience. God said, I'm going to, if you don't obey me, I'm going to take you out of the land and give the land to others. And then, of course, he said, I will have that temple which you've built will be cast from my sight. And God's saying, and he, he says this, I believe, to us too. I enjoy the relationship, and he's speaking to Solomon, I enjoy the relationship that we have. It's been a good relationship. The temple which has been built to honor me, the temple is a good thing. I like what takes place inside of the temple. It was worship. But if you and your children will not keep my statutes and you go and worship other gods and you serve them, understand that that brings me no pleasure. If you depart from me and my ways and go through the motions in this temple as you worship other gods under the pretense of worshiping me, then you leave me no choice because it's false worship, isn't it? He said, I'll drive you out of the land. I'll destroy this temple to drive home the point that what I desire most, and, and this is God's heart for us too, what I desire most with, with each of you here, with each of us, what God desires most in our relationship is simple obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. That's what God wants. That's what he requires of us. And God is saying to them, although the temple's beautiful, and it is indeed the fruit of hard work, what I value far above this temple is simple obedience to my word. And isn't that what God is looking for from us? 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So God warned against, what God warned against is exactly what would happen and did happen the sin of the children of Israel. And he, he wasn't talking to pagans here. He was talking to God's people. And the sin was so great that, that God had to act upon his warnings. And we won't see that here tonight, but we will see it in the future should God tarry. But he did vacate the temple. It's found in the book of Ezekiel some 300 years later. And then he left Jerusalem and went into the wilderness. The children of Israel were driven from the land, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. You see, God honors his promises, doesn't he? Why did he drive them out? Well, they wouldn't heed to his call to obedience. And one of the most important lessons that God gives Solomon in this warning is that obedience is paramount to God. All the religious activity, apart from obedience to God and to his word, all the activity means nothing to him, apart from obedience. You know, Jesus sent a letter 
in the book of the Revelation to the church at Ephesus. And he said, You've, I, I commend you for doing all these things, and they're all good. But I have one thing against you, and that is that you've left your first love. See, he wants to be first in our lives. And our demonstration of being first is obedience to him. So whenever God comes to us, which he does, and he speaks to us or warns us about an area in our life, family, we need to understand there's reason for it. It's not like God's bored and has to come up with something. No, no. He sees what's going on. He knows what's going on in our hearts. And he knows us better than we know ourselves, doesn't he? Because what does he see? He sees what's in here. Sometimes we don't want to see what's in here. So Solomon, by virtue of the fact that God warned him regarding this issue, would have been very, very wise to realize that clearly God is giving this warning because he sees something in my heart, some weakness in my life, some area of willful disobedience to God and his word, and, and maybe he hadn't done it yet. Maybe he has. But God says, I'm going to warn you because there's something coming, there's something brewing that you need to be aware of. And you know, God gives us warnings too. Because each of us, we have an ability to deceive ourselves into thinking, well, I'm okay with God. And he's okay with me based on, on a myriad of other things that I have done or do do, when in reality, I'm not obeying him. Like we can deceive ourselves and think, well, maybe God will overlook some of those things if I do these other things. But that's not the case. And it's so easy when God warns someone like Solomon or you or, or me when we find ourselves in Solomon's place. And here it is in, in 1 Kings. It's the greatest event in Solomon's reign. Again, the temple's been dedicated. 14 days of sacrifice, celebration, and blessing. And, and he feels like he's on a spiritual high. And all of this, all of this, these wonderful things that are taking place, and God immediately, he steps in and he warns Solomon about obedience. And think about this. The temptation could easily be, you know, in Solomon's shoes, everything's going so well. Everything's going so beautifully. The things that God had asked me to do, I've done. We're worshiping him. We're praising him. We're sacrificing animals. All is good. And God warns him. And he could easily have thought, well, God, what, what are you talking about? You know, haven't, haven't you seen what's taking place? Haven't you seen what's going on? And the, God, the way I feel about you, you and me right now, it, it's off the charts. How could I ever disobey you? And maybe Solomon, he's just so strong in his afterglow, so to speak, that disobedience wasn't even on his consciousness, not even on his radar screen. And maybe Solomon thought, well, this seems like a needless warning. In those times of great spiritual highs, they're wonderful. We enjoy them, don't we? And we should enjoy them. That closeness that we, we sense of God's presence, 
But we can't end it there. We have to remain on guard. We have to be vigilant in times of great spiritual highs. We have to be on guard, vigilant to protect our relationship that we have with God. In fact, Peter the Apostle talked about this, didn't he? In 1 Peter 5, 8, he, he said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That's us, seeking to devour us. So we need to be very, very careful for when God warns us, there's always a reason. And we don't have to fall big in order to understand this truth. And I'm sure if you look back to a time when you stumbled, you would say, I, I know God warned me, because God always warns, but I didn't listen. I didn't take that warning as seriously as I should have, and look what happened. You see, God wants us to always not only hear, but to heed his warnings too. There are always reasons that God sees that we may not see or even anticipate. Now in verse 8, God's looking into the future and the destruction of the temple because of disobedience. And he says this in verse 8. He said, and at this house which is high, everyone that passeth by it shall be astonished and shall hiss. And they shall say, why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? He's saying those that pass by this, this, this temple that would be destroyed, they'll be astonished by what they see and they're going to hiss. In other words, the temple, the destruction is there and even the Gentile nations will see the rubble that was left by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and they would hiss. And the word hiss means whistle in astonishment. Did you, did you ever do that? Like you see something, you go, Whew. He's saying that's what the people are going to do. They're like in amazement and astonishment. And they say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will answer, verse 9, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them, and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. See, God warned. They didn't listen. They didn't heed. God did what he needed to do. And, and you see, God desired, as he still desires, he desired that the nation of Israel would be a witness to the Gentile nations, a witness of his goodness, a witness of his blessings, his mercy, a witness of the fruit of obedience. He wanted Israel to be a witness of God's desire to bless obedience, to bless their obedience to his word, and would be a testimony of his holiness and his goodness as they obeyed. But if they would not give that witness voluntarily to the Gentile nations, God says, I'm going to make your discipline my witness. Yikes. A witness of my reality as God, as sovereign, and as a witness of my unchanging standard of holiness to those around you. 
I'm so thankful God doesn't change. I am so grateful that his standards never change. Because if we didn't believe that God's standards never change and we embraced the ways of the world, we'd be changing every single day, wouldn't we? And you'd wonder, we'd look, what in the world's going on? What's right? What's wrong? We don't know. But we know because God has given it to us. So God's saying that the Gentile nations will realize why all this has come upon you. These serious warnings, these two warnings from God ultimately would go right over Solomon's head. And we're going to see this in coming weeks where he would act like God never took the time to talk to him. And it's amazing when God takes the time to give us such personal attention that he speaks into our personal life and into our personal circumstances, we ought to be grateful, shouldn't we? God, you care enough to to speak directly to me. You, You speak to my heart. You warn me, you show me, you teach me. And all you're asking of me is to walk with you. In those times when God speaks in such a way to us, those are times that we should cherish and hold on to and, and be so grateful. God, you, you love me, don't you? And of course, he would say, yes, I do. We need to take him seriously. Solomon didn't take God's warnings as seriously as he should have. And we're going to see this as we go along in First Kings and in Second Kings and into Chronicles. You see... God knows what's best for us. And the more we cooperate with him by living holy lives, the sweeter life becomes. Haven't you found that? The more we walk closely with our God in obedience to his word, the sweetest times of life occur. In our cooperation with the Lord, and in that we become holy as we walk in holiness. I want to take a few minutes here to talk, take some time to talk about Israel. I mentioned God chose them to be a witness to the nations around them and teach others about him. And God desired that they would be examples of obedience to others. And Israel was a nation of priests, weren't they? They were a nation of prophets. They were a nation of missionaries to the world. And God's intent was for Israel to be a distinct people a nation who pointed others towards God and the promise of Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And for the most part, you know, when we look through the nation of Israel and even certainly through present day, for the most part, they failed in their witness because of disobedience. However, disobedience didn't keep God from the ultimate purpose of bringing Messiah into the world, did it? Praise God for that. Praise God, we have a Messiah. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So the question is, why did God choose Israel? Yes, to be a witness. But verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 7 gives us some insight. It says, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. 
The word holy means uh, people that are so special that God has set them apart. Well, it brings up a question, set apart for what? Set apart to live lives that are different from the rest of the world. And that's the same for us too. We are set apart. We are, the word sanctified, set apart for God's use. And Israel was set apart from the rest of the world. Be that example. God desires single worship, doesn't he? To worship the Lord thy God. There is one God, one Lord, and he's deserving of our praise. Exodus 34, verse 14 says, For the Lord shall, for excuse me, for thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Not saying he's jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for you. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. He wants our hearts. And that's a good jealousy, isn't it? That's the love that that the Lord has for the children of Israel, and it's the same love that he has for you as well. And, And this family is what makes us different too. The love that you have for Jesus as a follower of Jesus Christ, this love we have for him, his love for us should lead us to something. It should lead us to holy living. It should lead us to obedience. So what this means is that we ought to tear down the things in our lives that stand against the ways of the Lord. The things that draw our attention from complete surrender to him because they become idols to us. Well, he warned the children of Israel against idol worship, didn't he? And we can have idols or things that interfere with our relationship with the Lord and don't demonstrate our love for him. You see, we too, as the children of Israel, according to 1 Peter 2.9, says we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a, a peculiar people it means special. We can be both special and peculiar, right? But we're special. He calls us special people. That you should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Yes, we were children of darkness. Now we're children of light. Praise God for that. That makes us special, doesn't it? It makes us different than the rest of the world. So God's people are special. The nation of Israel is special. You and I, we're special. But look at what qualified the nation of Israel to this quote-unquote special status before God. And we see it in verse 7. It says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. God's saying, listen, it wasn't the size of the nation, large or small. It was something else that made them special. And we find this in verse 8. But because the Lord loved you. Because the Lord loved you. Check this out. God said through Moses, you are a special people. You are God's chosen people. You are his, and you're to be holy, you're to be different. And this is the thing. He loved you 
not because of you or anything you've done or how large the nation is, but because of him. It's incredible. I don't love you because of you. I love you because of me. What is that? It's grace, isn't it? It's grace. It's God's grace. He loved you because he loved you. He loves you because he loves you, period. Not that you qualify for his love. And when we embrace this, you know, I find it amazing. The Lord loves me because he loves me and he's chosen to love me. To love you and me. Why? Because he has chosen to do so because it's what? It's in accordance with his nature. He he can't be any other way. If his love is in accordance with his nature, he cannot change. 1 John 4, 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is, is love. God is love. And far be it from any of us to try to change God's nature, it's not happening. It's not because we have something to offer God, however sometimes we think that we do. Like we're doing God some enormous favor. But it's not about that. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we don't do. It's not about who we are. It's not about where we've been. It's not because we're lovable or lovely, as lovable and lovely as you are, for sure. Nothing to do with any of that. His love isn't because of me. His love isn't because of you. His love is in spite of me. His love is in spite of you. He doesn't love us based on our performance. I'm so thankful for that, aren't you? Because I don't know what a good performance would be before God. What's good enough? And you see, that's the problem with works-based religion. Where do you draw the line and say, well, that's enough. That's enough goodness that you've done to earn God's favor. (laughs) There is no way in the world any person could know when enough is enough. And here's why. Because enough is never enough. Never, ever, ever. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. It describes all of us. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And yet he, he breathed life into us. Spiritual life. And he, he inserted spiritual love into these, these temples. Not because of us, but because of him. And when you think about that, you realize that his love for you, if it's not based on performance, it is unconditional. It has absolutely nothing attached to it. Like we can have a tendency to do as human beings. You know, we, we show people favor when we feel like showing them favor. We show people favor when they favor us. I mean, this is, this is the way it is at least with me. But God's not that way. His unconditional love has a special name for it. It's called agape love. And and when you let that sink into your heart, what we find is this is really freeing. This is freedom. That I don't have to get on a treadmill and work my way into heaven because it's not going to happen. Jesus has done all the work on our behalf. From the cross, he declared, 
He said, it's finished. I've done the work. You just trust me. You can be certain of my love that will never change. I have removed your sin, your transgression, as far as the east is from the west, and I'm not going to remember it anymore because I am God. Because I am God. So as you go through your days, keep in mind that he loves you. Don't ever forget that love. And the love that he has for you, the love that he has for me, ought to move us in, toward, toward obedience to him and to motivate us toward obedience to him. Moses said, the Lord didn't set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number. He just loves you. And in verses 8 and 9, and because he would keep the, the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen. That speaks to us too, doesn't it? From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God honors his commitments, doesn't he? Commitments he made to the, to the fathers of the children of Israel. And we need to know too, yeah, God is love, absolutely. He is loving for certain, but he's also just in his perfection. And it tells us this in verse 10. And he repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. You know, that's the justice side of God, isn't it? And we know, you know, you've seen it. There are those that arrogantly shake their fist at God. They turn their back on him. They ignore him. They ignore his ways. They ignore his love. They scoff at God. They laugh at him. God says, unless they change, they're going to experience the wrath. And in today's present day and age, you know, the number of people that actually stand like that and vehemently oppose God, I'd suggest that they're probably relatively small in number. There are groups that we know of. They're very vocal and speak with, with boldness about their disdain and their hatred for God and disbelief. And some of those folks previously claimed to have received Christ. Now they stand against him. How does this happen? What happens to a person who once claimed to love Jesus and receive him, now hate him. Romans 1.21 tells us this. Because they knew, because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Their thoughts drifted from God as God had virtually no importance in their lives anymore. He's just, he's just out there. Went on to, to vain or eternally useless things, vain imaginations or reasoning, they became clouded. You see, when we depart from God in terms of obedience and we start moving in a direction that's unholy, we begin to think things that just aren't right. When we disobey God, 
then we can deny him by not glorifying him as God. We lose something very valuable. And this is a true fact. And that is that we lose the power of restraint because we begin to walk in our ways and not God's ways. And God warns and warns and warns against that. We lose the controls, so to speak. Our minds go unchecked, unrestrained, free to go anywhere. The boundaries become, in some cases, non-existent or just very, very minor. You know, picture an automobile. There's controls in an automobile, isn't there? There's the brake pedal, there's the accelerator pedal, there's the steering wheel, there's gas, and there's tires. And the controls are designed to keep the car in, on the road, right? And going in the proper direction. But out-of-control cars, they go unrestrained and usually cause an accident, damage, or injury. We need to stick to the controls that God has given us. Because if we don't, then we, begin, we can become vain in our imaginations. We depart from the truth. Matthew Henry wrote, Forsake the truth and errors multiply. So the empty mind leads to foolish hearts that were darkened. Foolish hearts means without understanding or empty, no longer embracing the truth. And that's a sad, a sad statement, isn't it? To have drifted so far from God that a person would no longer comprehend the truth, no, no longer sensitive to that which is right, become blinded. Foolish hearts are darkened, blinded by sin and blinded by the lusts of the flesh. You know, I think, think about Samson. You think about his life. And for much of his adult life, he, he struggled with sexual sin. He couldn't resist the temptation. He entertained vain imaginations, and he acted upon them. Remember, Saul, or excuse me, Samson took a Nazarite vow. He was committed to God from birth. Yet he fell into sin. He got entrapped in this vicious cycle that he found impossible to escape. And the enemy... Oh, the enemy was right there, playing on his pride. Oh, Samson, you use these gifts that God gave you, but I want you to use them in this way. It was a selfish, unholy way, wasn't it? His vain imaginations led to action, action upon action, sin upon sin, and before you know it, what happened to Samson, and it's happened to many people, his foolish heart was darkened, and sin became a way of life for him, no longer able to hear the voice of truth. And his heart became so darkened that the Lord released him to his sin. And the Bible says this, that he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. It's like, oh, that is painful. And to me, that is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. He knew not, he didn't even realize that the Lord's presence had departed from him, his heart so darkened that he could no longer comprehend the truth. Well, not all people are so blatant as that. Many people live in quiet rebellion. They simply live lives apart from the ways of God and go about life their own way. In either case, God says it's serious. 
I will have justice. I will repay. But I'm so grateful too that on the other hand, God says, I'm ready to forgive. Come to me. Return to me. Confess your sin before me. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm so grateful that there is a way back. And the way back is the same today as it was back in the days of Deuteronomy. Repent, in verse 11, says, Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Obey God's counsel. And to obey God's counsel, you know what? It's good for us. It's best for us. Because God only desires what's best for us. And you know, our obedience is also a good witness of God at work in our lives. Remember I shared that God's plan for Israel is that they would be a witness to those nations around them. A witness of obedience to God. A witness of holiness and godliness. And we are also called to be witnesses of godliness to those around us too. You know, it's interesting. We just, we just sang, I want the world to see that it's Christ in me. Those are wonderful lyrics. I want the world to see that it's Christ in me, that I am separated by God to his service, to his work, separated by his love to be an example to the world around me. And the best way to bring forth the example of Christ to others is that we, we walk with him. We obey his word. So, I guess in, in a quick summary for tonight, the takeaway is, is this. As we saw in 1 Kings chapter 9, God always warns. He gives us a warning. And praise God, he gives us warnings. He tells us what we need to hear. But he asks us to not only listen, but but to heed what he's instructing us to do. Because he always sees what's best. He knows what's best. He sees, he sees tomorrow. He sees the next day. He sees the next month. He sees the next year. He knows where we're headed. And he speaks to us in a way that would encourage us to forsake our ways and to embrace his. Second thing God honors obedience as true worship, doesn't he? Our obedience to him is, is a demonstration of our love, which is true worship. And lastly, may our obedience be a witness for Christ. I believe with all my heart that's what we want. Don't you want that? I want that. I want the world to see that it's Christ in me. And not that they would see me, but they would see Christ in me. They would see his love because my love is nothing compared to his. I want them to see his love. And his love becomes more evident to those around us, around me, when I'm walking with him. I'm obeying him.
I'm walking with my God in holiness. And I'm so grateful that, and you know, some people might not appreciate the holiness that you are as you walk with Jesus, but that's okay because God honors it. God honors that. So honor him in your life. And Father, thank you for the word. We thank you for the warnings. We thank you for the truth. And I pray, Lord, that, that each of us here tonight would make that fresh commitment to you to walk with you, to obey your truths, to obey your word, to listen to your voice as the Spirit of God speaks to us. And if, if any of us tonight are under any kind of warning, God, if you're warning and we're not listening, then just open up our ears, open up our hearts. And in those opportunities going forward, God, when you speak, may we be all ears and all heart for you. Help us to do that, please. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our beautiful Savior. And if you have anything on your heart,